You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible and talk about it, and other people listen, I guess. <laughs> well, that's kind of the purpose of a podcast, so we're good. <laughs> yeah, that's. I guess that's kind of the, the long and short of it. Um, we're fulfilling our mission. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you, I am barely here today. I just, it's been an interesting couple weeks went on vacation last week and then i had to you know then of course you have to go back to work and then you're confused time when you to recover. Get there and yeah <laughs> so it's it's been interesting but it was good we i i recommend kansas city for those of you who have not been the art museum was amazing it was definitely oh, it, definitely worth doing i think it's been two decades since i've been there and it was great so yeah we keep saying at some point we want to take you on vacation with us so that you can watch the girls and Mickey and I can can hang out a little bit in some of these places we get to go. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, that being this said, this is Samuel, by the way. That's he. Yeah, is trying to be nosy. Yeah, so I'm trying to keep him off the equipment. <laughs> yeah, keep him out of the microphone. <laughs> yeah. So, so okay. For those of you who are who are not watching, that's my orange tabby cat. So he showed up here while we started the series, so he got named after the book. And Reasonable, anyway. I suppose. Yeah, so. well, you gotta call him something. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's better than what I've heard cats called. So anyway, um, yeah. <laughs> we should, I guess we should. Uh, speaking of uh, where we're studying, I guess we should do that. Yeah, yeah. We we are disjointed this morning. I'm going to blame the weather. So, um, yeah, if you hear any thunder and lightning in the background, or the, there's a tree frog that's tried to join me this morning, too. Uh, I tried to find him before we started recording. No luck. So if you hear him, you know, enjoy the nature. So, uh, yeah, we left off in Second Samuel chapter 15. Um, we'd started in with David's flight from Jerusalem and we had talked about the people who joined him. We had a list of people who were there. Um, we really don't know a lot about these folks. We don't know if they were, um, you know, mercenaries that he had hired, if they were sojourners, uh, in Israel. So they weren't a sojourner. You got to remember that somebody who is respecting the laws of Israel, but they aren't a full convert or, you know, were these people converts? And, and it really is a point of debate, uh, just exactly where they fit in the social structure of Israel at this time and within David's court. And I don't think we're ever going to have a definitive answer, but I do think that we have some hints based on what's said about other people within the court and the fact that there's some, uh, some of the modifiers and some of the, the qualifiers are missing from other descriptions or included in other descriptions. But the point is they, they, these particular people left with David because they would have been targets for Absalom because they would have been in Jerusalem under David's good graces. So they, they would have had to have had David's favor and been loyal to David in some form or fashion to even live in Jerusalem. So when Absalom's coming, up, coming in to take over, then of course it makes sense that they're going to leave with David because that's the way they're going to be saved. Now we, we have these groups referred to, but in verse 19, we pick up with a very particular person. And verse 19 and 20 reads, And the king said to um, Ittai, the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner, and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I, t shall I today make you wander about with us, since I go I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness. So, there's some clues in here about what makes Ittai, the Gittite, different from the rest of these people. And so that kind of, by describing this one guy, we kind of get a little bit of a feel for these other people groups. And you, 
these are the things that you kind of learn to kind of pick up on where the, the compare and contrast that's presented in the scripture. So if there's a particular detail presented about one person, a lot of times you can pretty much assume that it's not true of everybody else, especially when it becomes the reason for somebody to do something. So um, we'll just kind of work through the verse. So it ties a Gittite. Uh, a Gittite is someone from the city of Gath. Um, and he's not one of the guys who was fighting with David and Gath. He didn't join David from Gath and move to Jerusalem because David told him, you know, in the speech, you came only yesterday. So he wasn't closely linked or associated with David in the same way the other Gittites and the other people groups were. He, he's somebody who has just joined them. Uh, this means he's not as likely to be as a target for Absalom because he wouldn't have been so closely associated with David. And he's not part of the inner circle of, of David's courts. He's not one of the palace guards. So, you know, we have these distinctions. We also learn that he's in exile from his home. Uh, so it seems like David's reputation for being someone who draws the disenfranchised, those outcasts, the people who don't fit, it's still intact at this point, and he's still drawing them to him. But he's probably not an Israelite. If he's in exile from his home and he's seeking refuge in Jerusalem, he's probably someone from a different nation altogether. So, you know, a lot of times we've, not a lot of times, but a few times, we've had people described by where they lived. Even though they're Israelites, they may have lived in a city, and so they had that modifier attached to their name. But this doesn't seem to be the case for a tie. And this probably means, too, since he thinks that, since David thinks that Atai is safe in Jerusalem from Absalom, that uh, Atai was not a hired sword or, you know, a hired gun for David. He, he was not somebody that David had on his payroll, so to speak. And this is the reason why a lot of people believe, a lot of commentators believe that these people groups that were spoken of in verse 18 were actually either at least sojourners, if not converts very similar to the way that Uriah was part of David's group. You know, Uriah the Hittite, not the Gittite, but Uriah the Hittite uh, was accepted well enough that he was allowed to marry, if not an Israelite woman, at least a woman who had converted to Judaism at that point in time. Because we got to remember, you know, Bathsheba, we talked about this. She was observing the laws and the Torah and doing the cleansing ritual. And so for an outsider to be allowed to marry a woman who was a Torah-observing Jew whether by conversion or by birth, mm -hmm. tells you something about his standing within uh, the community. So, uh, you know, so there's, there's, there's some little clues that you can kind of pick up on if you're reading closely and you're asking the right questions of the text. Now, the other thing that's fascinating about David's speech here is he calls Absalom the king. David seems to be relinquishing relinquishing the throne to Absalom at this point in time. Uh, he's not making a claim to it himself, which is kind of interesting um, because there, there's a whole lot of uh, things wrapped up in such a claim. And we're going to talk about that because it's going to become more clear as we move through the text. But there's also a second option here. David may have been, excuse me, I'm going to sneeze. Uh, he may have been, uh, saying that Absalom was the, the king as a way to test uh, Ittai's loyalty. Mm -hmm. You know, if Ittai had said that Absalom was the king, well, then do you really want him to be a part of the group that's fleeing to get away from Absalom? Was, was this guy a spy? And uh, so, you know, David's smart enough to do that. We, we really don't know. This is where you, you, you kind of almost wish you had that tone and that inflection so that you could kind of piece together what's going on uh, behind the scenes. But we don't have any of that. And I think one of the things we have to remember, this is not a novel. The Bible is not a fictitious book that somebody came up with. And, you know, when you have a fiction book, the writer can sit down and kind of go, okay, this is what this person was thinking. And this is how they're feeling. And the writer has all the characters living in their minds. And they've got all the answers for the motivation and everything like that. Where the writer of Samuel, all he can do is report what happens. And this is the reason why we don't have those behind the scenes looks. It's not because, uh, you know, God's trying to withhold them from us, but it's because the Bible is this divine human 
uh, cooperative of, uh, work where God reveals things to humanity at certain times, but other times God just uses what people knows uh, to, to communicate these truths. And so, you know, when we're talking about these conversations, we're kind of left with a lot of, a lot of questions that, you know, I, I would love to have answered and I would love to be able to answer for other people. But I think if we tried to say, oh, well, this is definitely what David was saying, or this was definitely what Itai mean, uh, meant by that, we're in trouble unless it's specifically spelt out within the text. Mm -hmm. So we, we, we got to be careful. We won't, don't want to read too much. Uh, but the main th point of this is Itai is getting involved. He's an outsider who's becoming involved in some serious political intrigue. And he's becoming involved in, in major political events within the nation itself and within Na David's own family. And so we're actually going to have three people, uh, four people, really, who get involved in this. And uh, as we move through the rest of the, uh, the uh, chapter. So there is one other option, though, that I do need to throw out there. Um, Ittai's name actually means with me. And so we do know that biblical characters, their names are often changed to reflect their condition or, you know, what's happening with the lesson they're supposed to teach. We've had that before. Uh, Maclon and Kilion from, from Ruth are, are great examples of this sickly and frail, you know, the, the guys that, that were named horrible names by their parents if we think their parents actually named them that. But if we consider the fact that the writer may have changed a name to reflect the purpose of the person within the story, then the names may make sense, which might be happening here. This might be a character who is either A, fictitious, and is supposed to represent everyone who joins David, which I kind of don't think that's the case. I think there's a reason why there's a contrast between this individual and the people groups. Or it could be that a real person was just renamed to reflect his attributes. And so he's, he's leaving. He's picking up. He's been in exile. He's left one home. And now he's getting ready to follow David into another home or, you know, or wherever they end up. So, verse 21, But Atai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also your servant will be. So, we, we see Atai's character. It's revealed in his speech. He, he's loyal. He's dedicated to David. This is where he has decided that he's going to, to be and who he's going to follow. And almost immediately, the similarities to another speech jump off the page. And this is a passage that's read so often at weddings, and that's Ruth with Naomi. Mm -hmm. Because if we go back to Ruth, Ruth 1, verse 16 and 17, Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord do to me and more, if anything but death, part me from you. So. Ruth is the ultimate convert. I think we're kind of familiar with that. We, you know, she's the Moabite who, who follows Naomi back to Bethlehem. She becomes, you know, David's great, great, great grandmother. I forget how many greats are in there. But, you know, Naomi's con convinced to allow Ruth to join her with this declaration and this pledge of loyalty. And David is going to, to be doing the same thing and with Ittai. And so the, David, I'm sorry, Ittai and Ruth are very connected. And um, matter of fact, uh, Rabbi Silva from um, Drisha, he, he says that he believes that Ittai's, uh, sorry, that Ruth's speech is patterned on Ittai's speech. Now, whose speech is patterned off of who is going to depend on what you believe about dating, which, you know, which book was written first, Ruth or Samuel. There's arguments both ways on that. To me, it doesn't really matter. It, it seems pretty obvious that one was borrowing from the other. And so you're supposed to view Ittai in the same way that we would view Ruth. And I think for a lot of us, because we are more familiar with Ruth's story and we know how we should perceive her, it's easier for us to go from Ruth to Ittai than Ittai to Ruth. So no, I, and I don't think that's... You, you don't think what? Go ahead and finish that thought. I, I, don't, I don't think it's wrong to, to view it either way. Okay. I, so, I mean, it's yeah. My my question is: Does this have any foreshadowing to John six? Um, 
66 through 68, I believe, or through, I guess, through 69. You're, th and you're throwing numbers at me. Well, I know, I'm, but I'm just letting everyone else know where we are. And uh, it's where the, a lot of the disciples left. So after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go as well? And then Simon Peter says, where else shall we go? <laughs> Or to whom shall we go? You, you have the words of eternal life, and and we have believed that you have come to know uh, that you are the Holy One of God. And so I'm kind of uh, uh, when I, that's what I thought of when I heard this conversation. David being like, "What? Are, everyone else is betraying me. Are you going to as well?" Kind of thing. You, you know, the thing is with David's life, so much of it is foreshadowing, right? And we're going to get into some really deep foreshadowing here in a minute. Uh, so it would not surprise me. Uh, I did not make that connection. That didn't jump out at me all of a sudden. And I think what's going to be fun is having gone through these stories is when we get to the, the Gospels with this background kind of behind us where we have been in so deep, we're going to start seeing where these things do kind of shine and, and give meaning to the Gospels in ways that we hadn't considered before. Right. And, and, and just to, to tease this, you know, it's going to be a little while, <laughs> but that is our plan is after, and this is long-term and now it may change. So, you know, we'll, we'll see how it goes, but our plan is to do a, a, a survey of the gospels uh, after we're done with first and second Kings. So that's yeah. be looking forward to that. That'll, I, I think that's going to be so much fun. Well, and this is, okay, so I had like a whole spiel later on in my notes, but it, since we're here now, uh, you know, one of the things I think is we miss so much in the Gospels when we don't have this background. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When we don't have these stories, we don't have the symbolism in order to understand the significance of events. And so when we have these pieces and parts of the story, which the Jews of Jesus' day would have had, I mean, Samuel, I think there was at least three scrolls of Samuel found in uh, Qumran. So in the Dead Sea Scrolls, I mean, when you've got multiple copies of any book within a community, that tells you how important it is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So whenever they've got that many copies, because these are all handwritten, Samuel's a long book, then this tells you that they have put a great deal of emphasis and a great deal of value within these specific stories. And so not just Qumran would have been uh, familiar with this, but all of Israel would have been familiar with David's story because David is their hope. They can't wait until the Davidic king returns to claim his throne. This is what they want. This is one of the reasons why they missed Jesus as the Messiah, because he didn't return as that political king that they were expecting. And so the symbols that were there that Jesus lives out had a much deeper meaning for them than for us because we don't live in that constant hope. We don't live with that anticipation of a very real physical savior trying, you know, coming back to save us. Um, you know, it's, we live in this very hyper-spiritualized world in some ways, which is kind of odd because we, we take all the good things of spirituality and we, we project them into the future and they have no real bearing here. <laughs> And they're very spiritual. They aren't tangible. But then at the same time, uh, we deny the supernatural. And so we live in this really weird tension if we're just a product of our culture today, which, uh, you know, I think that's one of the reasons we need to study our Bible is so that we can find the right place within that tension and the right ways to embrace that tension. And so because, you know, the Bible is a supernatural book and when the spiritual realities need to be a part of our, our awareness and our existence today. But at the same time, we do need to have that hope. So anyhow, this is, um, I, I think you're going to enjoy uh, where we're going to get to today. So we're going to get back into here, um, but we're going to pick up on verse 22. And David said to Atai, go then, pass on. So Atai the Gittite passed on with all of his men and all the little ones who were with him. Now, like I said, Naomi was convinced by Ruth's speech. David is convinced by uh, Itai's um, speech. But there's also some con contrasting elements here because Ruth went alone with a widow. Ruth went with one of the, the most um, 
underprivileged, uh, disadvantaged members of society into the unknown, just two women. And Itai, he's going with the king and this great company of men who are following him. We have the list in, in uh, verse 18. And Itai brings with him men who are also fighters. He comes with his brothers and their families. Little ones can mean children, but it can also encompass wives. The point of that is not to, to uh, make women seem less. The point is these are people who need to, needed to be protected. That, that's the point of calling them little ones. They're not great, mighty warriors. They're just people who are not going to be part of a fighting force. And so Itai is showing a great deal of faith here in a different way than Ruth was. And it's kind of appropriate, too, because when we're talking about um, men showing faith and, and looking for protection and security, uh, a man by himself is often more willing to take risk with those kinds of things. But a man with a family and little ones mm -hmm. is often far more cautious. And so uh, it, there, there is some, some gender differences here that, that really drive home the point that both Ruth took the biggest risk she could take and Itai's taking the biggest risk he can take. And so it's not that one is less or greater in what they're doing as an act of faith. It, it's simply an acknowledgement of with their due to their respective positions, they're both doing what they can to actually follow the one that God has put in their lives to help lead them forward into this new new life. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's, I mean, th this is a high level of support for David at a very volatile time. So, verse twenty three, and all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook of Kidron, and all the people passed on towards the wilderness. Now. The land here, uh, the land wept aloud. This is uh, the people who are outside of Jerusalem. This is the people who aren't involved in all the politics and all the intrigue and, and everything that's happening within the city of Jerusalem itself. And so that we're seeing that David's support, even though it may have eroded within Jerusalem itself, where people were familiar with what was going on, because remember, they don't have internet, they don't have the nightly news, they don't even have tabloids. Um, that the, those people outside who don't have access to the information, they're still very much in support of David. It's the 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 people inside the city who've lost some confidence, with, and rightly so, because they've seen what's happened. They they know about Bathsheba, they know about Uriah, they know about uh, uh, Tamar and Amnon, and so this is the reason why we're seeing this difference in support from the the country folk and the city folk basically now kidron is between jerusalem and the mount of olives and it's the place where idols the sharapels and other cultic op um, items are going to be burned later on we're going to get to that when we get into kings uh jeremiah thirty-one forty describes the valley of kidron this way the whole valley of dead bodies and ashes and all the fields as far as the brook of Kidron to the corner of the horse gate for the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall be plucked up or it shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. So Jer Jeremiah is saying in his time, which we still have some a few years before we get to Jeremiah. He's saying it's a valley full of ashes, valley full of bodies. This is not someplace you you want to be. It's also the, um, the traditional border of Jerusalem. When you get to Kidron, you've, you've officially reached the end of the city. And mm -hmm. that, we, can, we can date that with certainty all the way back to the reign of Solomon, which was probably uh, reflects the fact that this was something that was happening, at least being recognized, even if not officially, in David's own time. Uh, that, that reference there where we get that information from is 1 Kings 2, uh, 36 and 37. So we know at Solomon's day during his reign that when you got to Kidron, you were exiting the city. So David is exiting the city. This is his first leg of a 30-mile journey with all of the people uh, because he's not done yet. Now, a little note on the writing style here. The, the author 
is writing this at a very slow tempo. Uh, it, everything is in a passive tense. Uh, there's no active verbs here. Uh, the land was weeping. The people were crossing. The king was crossing. The, the, the dynamic style that he's adopted in other areas, gone. It's almost like he's reluctant to even write this. It, it almost has the feeling of a dirge that, you know, this is... Mm-hmm. This is a horrible event the, everyone should lament and it should be done with great reluctance and even writing it uh, should be done with uh, great reluctance. And, you know, David not on the throne is devastating and it's not just devastating to David. It's devastating from the point of view. David is God's anointed. David is the one that God had chosen to reign. And if God's not going to keep David on the throne, then what hope is there for Israel? I, I don't think we understand the significance that king, the, the figure of a king within that culture and time. He's so important and how the gods deal with the king is a foreshadowing and a precursor of how God, our God, or even other gods in other countries are going to deal with the people of that land. So if the God in Israel, in this case, it's going to support the king, then the the land can be can re, they can relax, they can rest in security because that means God is going to support the people of the land. But if the king's dethroned, this it, I mean this is terrifying because what's going to happen? So the the other thing with about this is um, David kind of starts to make. A metamorphosis in this moment. David in the wilderness is not the David in Jerusalem. He's not the king who walks in lofty places and looks down and sees women that he can take. He is somebody who is seeking God's provision and he is seeking God's, you know, care and security. That the mythic elements of David almost disappear in his time in the wilderness. This is the guy we admire. This is the David that we celebrate. And it, it, the David of Jerusalem is always kind of a dicey guy. And it's the David who, when he is out there in that wilderness, that, that, we, that we love. And so we, we were almost relieved to see him returning, going home, if you will. Because, you know, where did we first meet David? Well, he was out taking care of the flocks. He was in the wilderness. And this is where we like to see him. And we have to remember that within Samuel, people within the system can't see the wrongs. The the people who understand what's wrong with the system are always the outsiders. They're the ones who come back in and they, they point to, hey, there's a problem here. This needs to be addressed. People who are, who are uh, a part of it or at the head of a system obviously are blinded to its faults. And so it's there seems to be this kind of uh, sense that David has to be taken out. He's got to be taken out of the throne. He's got to be taken out of the city. He has to return to being that outsider who can look in and say, this is what's wrong with the kingdom. And he, he needs to wake up to, you know, what ails the kingdom so that it can now be addressed. Hmm. And I, I, well, I mean, we remember where we opened the book. I mean, we opened the book of Samuel where the, the, the priests are, are sinful, they're molesting the women, they're eating the sacrifices, and the men are still participating. The women who are safe and secure with their families still participating. The only person who has the courage to say there's a problem with the system is Hannah, the ultimate outsider. She's the childless woman. Mm-hmm. And no, we're, we're going to see this. No, I was I was thinking about um in, oh my gosh I think it's in finally comes the poet is that the Brueggemann title that's uh, that's one uh, of them yeah is he I believe it's that book he talks about how whenever the, the prophets are never inside is it or the Heschel's prophets I don't know it's been a long time since I've read either <laughs> one of them um both great books I I highly recommend them absolutely but in one of them they. And probably both of them they reference. One's probably Brueggemann's probably referencing Heschel if it, 
<laughs> right. <laughs> it wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me. Um, but one of them, they talk about how the, the prophets are able to call out problems with the kingdom because they aren't supposed to be insiders. So it's really interesting. You kind of have David being forced, you know, because the, the thing about David is he, he speaks prophetic words. I mean, he writes prophetic Absolutely. psalms, but he's the king mm-hmm. at the same time. And so it is kind of interesting. I don't know if this is where you're going. It's this being forced into the wilderness. Um, like you, I mean, basically I'm kind of mirroring what you said being forced into that prophetic role in order mm-hmm. to criticize his own kingdom, like the prophets who were forced out, like uh, Elijah uh, being forced out mm-hmm. of uh, Ahab's court when he <laughs> criticizes his kingdom. So it's a very interesting uh, kind of parallel there. But. Yeah, he, he has to be taken out of, like you said, not only to critique his own kingdom, but also to critique his own life. And sure. it, so there, and what's, interesting is we're going to see on david's journey he's actually brought to a place where he is forced to confront the impact of his own actions on others Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. it's going to happen to him and so now he can operate with empathy well and 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 one of the well and they say and there's a practical part of that too i mean and again i know i i know i reference jordan peterson a lot but (laughs) he's got some interesting ideas i don't i don't agree with everything he says but right. one of the things he talks about with, with people is if you want to affect a change in your life, one of the first things you do is you take one week and you take note and you observe everything you do to the best of your ability as though you're an outsider, as though you're mm-hmm. watching yourself like mm-hmm. someone who has never met yourself mm-hmm. in order to catalog how it is you behave and the things that you do that don't put you closer to the goals in your life. Right. You know, and, that, and that's, that's huge because I mean, how many of us actually are objective about ourselves? I, so often we are so good at going, Oh, well that person shouldn't speed. But then when we're speeding down the highway, well, like I hurry up and get home and make dinner. You know, I mean, we, we've always got an excuse for ourselves. Mm-hmm. We, we are rare. Uh, we rarely extend the same grace to others. And, you know, trying to be objective about ourselves is difficult. And I think that's one of the reasons why the prophet can't be a part of the system. And even Nathan, uh, the prophet, you know, he delivers his word to David and then he leaves. He goes home. And Nathan, when he does become a part of the political system, which we're going to find later, that's when he kind of becomes a little questionable with some of his motives. We saw the same thing with Samuel. When Samuel was the outsider and he wasn't part of Saul's courts and he wasn't trying to pull the strings to manipulate and control Saul, he was a great guy. The moment he gets involved in the system, this is where there becomes a problem. And so, you know, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't be a part of systems. Uh, We just need to be aware of how being involved can impact us. And so this is kind of a really interesting idea. Now, there is another parallel here, too that uh we shouldn't miss that david's being driven out of uh out of jerusalem back into the wilderness now we can obviously see you know kind of a little a little connection here with jesus after the baptism when he is driven into the wilderness Mm -hmm. and so there's a moment there and of course the nation of israel with uh was driven into the wilderness also so we we do have these connections and I, I don't want to get too, too deep because I think it's, I don't think there's a whole lot there. I just think it's just kind of a little, Hey, pay attention because we're, we're still going to have more connections uh, that are, I think more significant, but we shouldn't be surprised to see, I don't want to say they're lesser. Um, just maybe not, not as meaningful. They're, they're just, they're there so that you see it, but they may not have a huge, theological message to go along with it sure so yeah other than you know just affirming the 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 overall themes so verse 24 uh i I do sorry i almost forgot when we see david from this point forward uh when we listen to his speeches there we're gonna we should know that there is a deliberateness about what he has to say he's not as brash he's not as um just you know, he he's not the cocky young man that we met earlier who who's going to mouth off to people. 
he isn't the guy sassing his brothers in the valley as they wait for the giants to attack. You know, this is, he's more introspective. And we're going to see a different side of David than what we've seen to this point. Uh, you know, we go back and we think about the message that he delivered to Joab. Well, you know, people die in war. It's no big deal. That's That David's going to kind of fade. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's good. We don't want that guy. We we want this guy that we're going to see from here on out. So Abathar came up. This is verse 24. Abathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with the Levites bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God until the people had passed out of the city. So for the first time in all of this, we're getting a clue as to where the religious community stands with David. Uh, before this, I mean, they're in Jerusalem. Um, we hadn't been told what they think about this. And so now we're finding the Levites and the priests, these are the people, they're on David's side. They aren't with Absalom. Now, if we think about what we've read about Absalom so far, and as we read forward, we're going to find that Absalom doesn't really talk about God. But we haven't heard David really talk about God for a while either. So this is the, the first time we're, we're getting back to this kind of speech. Now, um, we haven't seen Abathar in a while. Uh, we first met him back in 1 Samuel chapter 22. This is when uh, David had gone in and uh, taken the showbread, taken the, the sword of Goliath. Saul finds out about it. He sends the, the warriors in to kill the priest at Nob. And Abathar is the only one who escapes. And so he goes to David, tells David what, hap- what happens. David pledges to care for him the rest of his life. And Abathar serves David as his personal priest from that point on. And Abathar is going to keep showing up in David's story. And he's going to be an interesting person. Zadok, uh, we first met him in 2 Samuel 8. He's also one of David's priests. Uh, but, but this verse here uh, is kind of an interesting verse because we have a few different translations. So I read it in the ESV because that's kind of our base text. But Alter has a different translation. He says, and look, Zadok and all the Levites were also with him, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God, and they set down the Ark, and Abathar came up until all the people finished crossing over from the town. Now, not too different, but then you've got Zamora, and Zamora is another one of our primary sources that we're using here, Uh, and he says, there also came Zadok and all the Levites carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God and set down the Ark of God. And Abathar offered sacrifices until the people had finished finished passing over out the day, out of the day. Sorry. So Zamora suggests that not only does the text suggest that, um, you know, say that Abathar came up, is that Abathar actually raised up. So a little difference. So there's a difference between coming up and raising up, but that he raised up is what the text would say. But then sometimes the Hebrew will omit the direct object of a verb mm-hmm. and especially if it's one that that's expected and so what would be expected here is that abathar the priest would raise up offerings so zamora suggests that's actually why we have this distinction between zadok and abathar and that abathar's uh either offering the the normal morning sacrifices which the priest would be in charge of or he's actually offering sacrifices on behalf of the people that they would be safe. Either one would would work. We, we the text doesn't clarify. Obviously, uh, the text doesn't even clarify specifically that this is an offering. But Zamora offers some really great um, technical reasons why he thinks that's correct. And I won't bore everyone with the grammar lesson. Uh, but by the way, that word for raise up at nisa, which is a really fun Hebrew word you can remember because. Uh, NASA is very close to NASA, and NASA sends rockets up, so you raise up. So that's how you remember your Hebrew is by random, really weird connections. Hmm. Uh, so, oh, I had all sorts of crazy rhymes when I was learning my, my vocab. So, verse 25, Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. Verse 26, but if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do what seems good to him. So first of all, incredible statement of faith. 
I I mean, this is just it, it's wild because David is just God can do whatever he wants. If he's not happy with me, he can do whatever he wants. This is submitting his whole self to the pleasure of God. This is not saying if I have enough faith, if I offer the right sacrifices, give the right tithe, call the 1-800 number on the screen and pledge my monthly, you know, none of that. You know, he doesn't say if I do all this stuff, God will take me back to Jerusalem. He says if God has pleasure in me, not what I do and, and not by the religious observances that I perform, but me, then God's going to do it. And if it's not something that he finds pleasure in, he doesn't have to do it. I, I, I will submit to this and, and not because, you know, he has any choice when God decides to do something, God decides to do something. But, you know, how many of us have the courage to just say, you know, God, if you have pleasure in me, then you'll, you'll give me what I hope and desire to see. And if you don't, well, then I, I'm, I'll, I'll wait, I'll see what you do. Mm-hmm. And well, and I, Go ahead. I, I do find it really interesting because earlier, and I don't remember the exact situation, but I seem to remember earlier in the book or earlier in First Samuel, we had Saul being very, um, what's the word, fatalistic um, mm-hmm. about things, where it was basically like, well, I'm done anyway, kind of attitude, where this is very, this is, it, it's similar but the attitude's different, if that makes sense. Um, it's, yeah. it's God's going to do what he's going to do, and I'm going to submit myself to that, whereas Saul kind of seemed to have this idea of, well, I'm already deposed as king, so I might as well do what I want to do. Yeah, well, that that's the thing. Yeah, Saul used it as his excuse to act out. Mm-hmm. David is still seeking to do the right thing in the midst of this. Right. And he's not, he hasn't given up hope. And I think, I think that's a huge thing. I mean, we talk about the verse in Proverbs a lot of times uh, where there is no vision. Uh, and, you know, David still had a vision for his life. He, you know, he had hopes for what he believed he should accomplish and what God should accomplish through him and with him because God had spoken these great things over him and he hasn't relinquished that. He's still hanging on to it, but he's still recognizing that God is sovereign. Because here's the thing. If Absalom does take the throne, and you, you know, if we try to read this like we don't know the rest of the story, if Absalom takes the throne, God's covenant is still fulfilled because the Davidic dynasty is still carried on. David's son would still be king of Israel. So God was, would still be true to his word. And, and that, I think, is where I know in my own personal life where I, I have to wrestle with, you know, okay, God, what's, what's going on here? What should we do? What's the next step? is whenever, you know, either way doesn't violate God's command. You know, if I know precisely, okay, if I do it this way, I'm following God's desire and will because it's what he said in his Bible. So I've got it down. I don't have to think about it. I don't mm-hmm. have to question. Mm-hmm. But when there's two options and neither one violate the word, this is where I go, what do I do? You know? mm-hmm. And so you know, David, he recognizes that God can fulfill his promises. And you know, one of the things I think you learn as a believer with God so often when he fulfills his promises, it's seldom what you expect. He often does it in a way that you you aren't anticipating. And to hold on to your faith during those moments when God works out a crazy future and provision that you didn't, you couldn't even envision, couldn't imagine, sometimes that's really hard. And so the fact that David, even in this moment, as he, he's being run out of Jerusalem, he, he's still hanging on to that faith. That's incredible. And I, I think we forget that people back in the Bible time, they didn't have some kind of crazy, weird dispensation of faith that we don't have now. It wasn't like, you know, God showed up and talked to him over lunch all the time and, and it was easy for them. They they still live with these spiritual uncertainties that, that we live with. And this is one of the reasons why we have the story. So we can see these human beings fighting through the process of how do you hang on to faith? How do you live your faith even in the midst of not just, you know, these, we have these little um, kind of esoteric uh, existential crises that, that we face in our modern society, but rarely does our faith actually have to look at 
is someone going to kill us? Do I have to face someone with a sword? Uh, this is the kind of thing they lived in. So, you know, if we see God's presence more strongly, maybe it's because the threats are, are stronger. And hold on one moment while I go turn off the air conditioner. I thought I turned it off. Oh, no worries. Seems I turned off the small one, but um, not the big one. So anyway. All right. We'll just so, we'll put that out. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Okay. So, but the, the, what I was trying to get at there is there, there's almost this, this equivalency sometimes that the greater God's presence is, is the greater, uh, the challenge you're going to face. So maybe some of us aren't ready to experience God on these levels where David, you know, in chapter seven of second Samuel is talking to God and having this whole conversation. Maybe we haven't had those conversations because we aren't going to be facing something like being run out of our city. So just just something to chew on. But there's also something else going on here in that David recognizes something in the very act of taking the ark with him on this journey. Uh, if we remember back to 1 Samuel, when we opened up the story and we did have those priests, you know, the Eli and his sons, Benkos and Hophni, they took the, the Ark of the Covenant out into battle. They used it as that talisman that they tried to manipulate God into giving them a victory. And David is rejecting that mindset. He, he's saying, I'm not going to use this as a means to, to have protection for myself. I, I'm actually going to. Um, I'm going to strike out in faith and I don't have to have the ark with me in order for God to be with me in this journey. That's huge, especially when you consider, when you think about the Exodus coming out of Egypt and the fact that the ark and the, the presence of God above the ark being manifest as part of the, um, part of the hope and the security of the nation. And now for David to say, I don't have to have it. I can actually go where I need to go and still trust that God's with me. It's, it's very surprising as far as a cultural and societal um, mindset of the time. Mm -hmm. But when you think about who David was before all this, back when we go back to that shepherd boy who, who's composing the Psalms as he's watching the sheep, he's fighting the bears and the lions. It makes sense that he already knew that he didn't have to have the ark with him. But if we look forward, one of the things that we need to recognize is this element of Finkos and Hofni and their attitude towards the ark and using it as a talisman. That is very much something that Israel is going to fight as part of their, their core identity throughout the rest of the, the, um, the kingdom yeah i heard it too yeah. there's the frog there's the tree frog. <laughs> <laughs> but because what happens in in the final days of the kingdom before they're sent into exile is part of the rebuke is the fact that they believe that just because they have the ark they have the temple is that they as a nation are safe and not only are they safe they have the ability to um determine who has access to god and who doesn't and so they become very exclusionary where God had not called them to that. God had called them to be an example for all nations to draw other nations in. And so David um, is one of the few kings that actually gets it right. He's one of the few kings who recognizes that you don't get to use the symbols of God and the symbols of his faith as a way to manipulate God or a way to exercise power over the people. And so this becomes a theological statement. And just his refusal to bring the ark with him. And I think we can, that's one of those things that we can uh, overlook. But, you know, I, I, I don't want to be too hard on the Israelites with that because I also see that in Christians today. You know, oh, I mean, you, you, you definitely see that in, in the way that some, pe some people or even churches operate, where it's this idea that, you know, we're, we're the chosen people. And then they just kind of don't, I don't know, I don't want to be too mean on it, but this idea <laughs> that people get this idea that they're the chosen people, they're the keepers of the, the only correct way to interpret the word of God, um, that the, the Bible is only for them, 
And <laughs> then you hear some of their statements and you're like, you're not actually even reading the whole Bible. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, and it reminds me uh, a lot of these arguments that, because I, I've heard uh, people in debates uh, just make fun of something that someone says, like literally mock the words that someone said mm-hmm. when the words they're saying are direct quotes from Jesus and mm-hmm. other places in the Bible or Paul. And, and, and you're going, whoa, you don't need to laugh at that statement because that is literally in the Bible you claim to believe. And right. what, what it kind of reminds me of is uh, when, when I believe Jesus is, is speaking to, I think, it's, I think he's speaking to like the Sanhedrin or somebody, and they're like, well, we've never been slaves to anyone. <laughs> right. And you're just like, wait, that's not, that's not even factually correct if you believe <laughs> the scriptures. And well, so, yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to go off on a tangent, but I, I've, just, I've seen that so often where the, it, it, you've got to come to drives. our church. You've got to believe our doctrine and our dogma. Mm-hmm. Our, you've got to dress this way. You have to wear your hair this way. You, you got to drive. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and before, they're, before people are even allowed to read the Bible, they're, they're told they have to memorize mm-hmm. uh, certain creeds and confessions and things so that, you know, they, so they know how to interpret the Bible. And it's like, well, you know, those things were good for a time, a lot of them. But the mm-hmm. thing is, oftentimes they're even going outside of how to even interpret correctly the words of the creeds and, and confessions that they're going on. She was like, they're, and making the Bible mm-hmm. say the opposite of what it says sometimes. So, anyway, and, and go, that's, go that's a top down, that's a top down institutional way that, that it's done. And the other way, too, is where you, you from the, kind of the bottom up with, with individuals, where if I, pay my tithes if i read so many verses of scripture every day if i say this prayer then god's obligated to to do whatever it is that we feel like he's obligated to do which obviously god's not obligated to do anything that he hasn't you know placed upon himself Mm -hmm. and so the this idea that god operates with total freedom and that we should be willing to submit and that we should operate in faith and that we we do the right thing obviously we we want to do that that's part of maintaining a good relationship but at the same time it's not with a desire to manipulate because you know if we think about this david taking the ark could have been seen as i'm going to protect it i'm going to have god near me it could have been dressed up in all the right vocabulary to make it look like a righteous act. Mm-hmm. And David recognized it for what it is. And I think that's where we have to be very careful as Christians not to justify doing what we want to do just because it looks right. right. You know, we, have, we have to ask, is, is the motivation right? Because the other problem with removing the ark is this is an admission of defeat. And not just David's defeat. David going on his own. Okay, that's an admission of David's defeat. David has lost the throne. Removing the ark from Jerusalem is an admission of God's defeat. Why? Because God can't hold that territory. Mm-hmm. And you have to think about all the things that it took to get the ark there, going all the way back to Sinai, where Moses gets the instructions for Bezalel to create, create the ark, the wilderness journey, the conquest of Canaan, the conquest of Jerusalem itself, trying to get the ark from Obed-Edom's house into the city of Jerusalem itself. So now this the fact that so much happened to get the ark there and to get it there on God's terms for a human to remove it, for anyone other than God to remove the ark on anything other than his terms would, would have been wrong and it would have sent the wrong message. So David deliberately refused uses to take the ark out of Israel, out of Jerusalem itself, and to basically say God still reigns. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. God still holds this property. I may not be there, but you know what? A human being isn't the one who's responsible for making sure that God maintains his territory. And so David is actually this, he's making a theological statement that's very very profound, and I, I think we miss that because we don't understand the significance of Jerusalem and the conquest of Jerusalem and, and Israel as a nation 
We just think, oh, they found a place to settle. Mm-hmm. And no, this is a very specific spot. And so um, the other thing going on here is if you notice David's, the, it's not the words. What David's saying here, the sentiment is very similar to something we read back in chapter 14, where we have, let me see the face of the king, and if there be guilt in me, let him put me to death. That's Absalom's words about going to see David. Mm -hmm. David is basically placing himself in the same position before God that Absalom had placed himself before David. That Absalom's going to let the king and his father make the call on whether or not he lives or dies. He just needs to be in his presence. David is doing the same thing. But notice the difference. Absalom doesn't get that love. He doesn't get that acceptance. There's no forgiveness. And that embitters his heart. Where David totally, he accepts. He, he, he's secure in God's love. And he doesn't have that same animosity that, that builds within Absalom that, that propels him to do these things. And we're shown once again that God the Father is so much greater than even David the Father. David is a human being. He's flawed. Yes, we celebrate him, but he falls short. And I think that's part of the reason why we have the book of Samuel within the Bible is so that we don't become kind of all starry-eyed and, and, oh, look how great King David was. We actually have to confront him as a human being who, yes, he foreshadows Christ, but he is less than Christ. And we we got to keep that in mind. And he's he's not the great hero. Well, he is a hero, but he's not the hero of the Bible like so many people want him to be. So, um, verse twenty seven, the king also said to Zadok the priest, "Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace, and with your two sons, Ahimaz, Ahimaz, I love that name." your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abathar. So, um, again, a couple of different translations here. This time, the translation differences are because, number one, it's written. We don't have inflections. Number two, Hebrew does not have um, punctuation marks. So, we really don't know if this is a statement. Aren't you the seer? Uh, you know, is it a rhetorical or question? Uh, is it you know hyperbole? What what's going on here? So there's some question about whether uh, Zadok really was a seer or not. Now I don't have a problem. It seems like some of the commentators I read had a problem with Zadok being a seer. Uh, for those who may not have kept up with us through the entire podcast, First Samuel nine nine, we learn that a seer is the ancient name of a prophet. This is the term applied to Samuel. It's also the term applied to Gad. And in First Chronicles 25, 1 through 5, we learn that the son of Heman is, um, that the sons of Heman are also seers. And we talked about that on a previous episode with the Psalms. So, you know, Heman was one of the musicians and the gatekeepers of the temple. And so it's very likely, it, we shouldn't be surprised if other priests, Levites, musicians also were seers within David's courts. So we know that after Samuel, Samuel established that school of prophets, Samuel was the one who brought prophecy back into the nation with some kind of um, real presence and force to what was happening within the prophetic, um, I don't want to say realm, but the, the prophetic uh, circles of society. And so I don't, I, I don't think we should be surprised uh, that that it's the you know, that Zadok is re- uh, recognized as a seer, and I don't see a problem with it where some people try to explain it away and go, "Oh no, no, he wasn't a prophet; he was just a priest." Uh, the idea that the two, the uh, one person could inhabit both offices, really not that shocking. And like I said, we see it in First Chronicles. So anyway, no one. Tr- uh, it, what I did find interesting, interesting was no one actually tried to describe or help me understand. Why Zadok is said to have two sons, and then the, the kids are identified as his son and Abathar's son. There, now, there is a possibility, and this is just my speculation, because like I said, no one tried to unravel that bit, that um, you know, Abathar and Zadok, they would have been the elders, and so they would have been teaching uh, both these kids 
respectively within their roles as priests, as the the um, ones in care of the, the temple, well, not the temple at this point, but in care of the Ark and what they needed to do as gatekeepers and all of this stuff. So, you know, a lot of times when you have these kinds of teachers, their students are their sons. So Abathar would have taught Zadok's son. Zadok would have taught Abathar's son. Yeah, they're they're all related too because they're all part of the tribe of Levi. Well, or so. may, maybe one of Zadok's sons wasn't there. Maybe like Zadok has two sons, but both these guys, yeah. not his sons. Yeah, I mean, well, and it could be that simple. Well, and when you're having a conversation with somebody, I mean, how often do you like make the a little off remark to make sure that person that somebody who's there, but maybe you aren't talking to them directly, knows that they're included? I there, there's all kinds of of reasons. Uh, I wouldn't see this as a major. Oh, there's another contradiction. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and really, those are the kinds of things people want to blow up and go. Oh, this is why you can't trust the Bible. Look, you know. That's how ridiculous it gets. And, um, but whatever, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's yeah. there. Uh, now, David's response to all of this actually seems to be kind of altruistic. Uh, you know, Ittai, go home. Zadok, take the ark back. But then in verse 28, it's like David, the light bulb goes off. And he says, See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until the words come from you to inform me. Verse 29. So Zadok and Abathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and they remained there. So it's like David goes, wait, wait a minute. You've proven you're loyal to me. You obviously believe I'm the rightful king or else you wouldn't have brought the ark out here to begin with. Mm -hmm. So while you're in town, keep your ears open. If you hear something good, (laughs) <laughs> Send me some words. I mean, so you know, David's not stupid. He he's gonna take advantage of the situation as it's presented to him. And so, you know, he's got an opportunity to have spies because the the religious establishment would have been important for Absalom to maintain. Because if he, you know, um trying to think of the right word here, but if if he puts himself, you know, distance himself from the um, from the religious establishment within Jerusalem. He's placing his own reign in danger because why do kings reign? Well, because so far it's been because a prophet, a seer, has anointed him. Well, if Zadok's a seer, and pe- other people within the court and uh, within the the, the uh, religious establishment are seers. Absalom needs them to be on his side. At the very least, he needs them not to renounce him as king because this is going to discredit him as being the king. So, you know, there's a certain level of protection for Zadok and the other priest from Absalom. And so the idea that you know, they could remain in, the, remain in the city and not be under any major threat, it, it actually stands to reason that this would be the case. and. You know, the idea that the religious institution and establishment are intertwined with governmental authorities shouldn't surprise us. I mean, we've seen this. I mean, if anybody who studied European, you know, <laughs> you're laughing about the frog again. I am. Uh, <laughs> the, but, you know, if you look at European history, I mean, all of the monarchs, everything goes right back to, you know, God-appointed right to rule and the God-appointed right to be king. This is part of humanity, and I don't think we're ever really going to get away from the idea that government and religion are actually intertwined and interdependent on each other, despite the fact we might want them to be separate. And so, you know, we have to, I think we need to be careful in how we play that out and what that looks like. And I'm not going to get into any kind of political, you know, this is what you should do as a, in the political realm because you're Christian. Uh, that's not the point of the show. But as Christians, that's the defining factor of our life that should influence our politics, not our politics influencing right. our faith. <laughs> and so I think it's a pretty sound statement to make in that. So and don't get me started on that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I said we were going to get to another great connection between David and Jesus. Uh, I think, that's I think we're at a time. time. Yeah, I was going to say, so we're going to we're going to wait on that. We're going to come back. Uh, just a little teaser 
uh, real quick, because I want people to be sure and tune in next week. This is our first, well, not our first mention, but um, the mention of Mount Olive. And any time you have Mount Olive called by name in association with a specific person, not a people group, but a specific person, that only happens with two different people. One's David and one's Jesus. So there's your, your first connection. I mean, like, boom, concrete, cannot escape it kind of connection between these events in David's life and within Jesus' life. So um, anyway, that's your, that's your teaser. All right. So. Well, I am looking forward to that. Hopefully everyone else is. Um, that's, yeah, I actually got a chance to go through it earlier. Um, I didn't, obviously didn't get a chance to study as much as you did, but I did get a chance to go through it before this and, and kind of pick a couple things apart. So I'm going to see if maybe we picked up on some of the same things. And, right. uh, but until then, everyone's going to have to wait a week to find out. And uh, <laughs> if you want to be part of the conversation, hit us up on ravencreeksc.com. Um, that's the website uh, you can, where you can find show notes. You can also find our various shows, the newest one being uh, Answers to Giant Questions with Tim Stedman. And uh, we also have uh, Tending Our Nets uh, with Joshua Sherman. And uh, both those shows are really good. And mm-hmm. Josh, I, I've been seeing his stuff. I've been seeing people share his stuff quite a bit. Um, he's he's yeah. doing some good stuff over there. Well, so and check it out. So to shout out for Tim right quick too, because in the paddle store, when people are asking questions in there, he's just doing a show about it. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, he's he's been doing a fantastic job on that, and uh, so yeah, I look forward to seeing where those shows go. I'm I'm excited to have him on board. Uh, we do, of course, still have the commentarians with Joe Zaragoza and Change My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. Also, mm-hmm. good shows and uh, have been going strong for. Uh, each of them over a year now um Mm -hmm. so go check those out and uh if you want to be part of the conversation hit the social media raven creek sc on uh, facebook and twitter is where you can find us and uh we'll be glad to have the conversation so we'll see you next time (laughs) Bye. bye you've been listening to the faith and other oddities podcast a raven creek social club production don't forget to follow us on facebook twitter and instagram If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.